Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Trust but verify. Yep, that's the uh, the subject of today and thank you for everyone who wrote in insisting that I cover the topic of due diligence. Yeah, that's actually none of you. Nobody contacted me after the uh, mentions I gave it over the last couple of weeks saying I was thinking about doing an episode on due diligence and I was putting it off and putting it off, covering other topics and uh, I said if anybody wrote in I would uh, I'd cover the topic. Nobody did but do you know what I'm going to do it for your own good, just for your own good. All right so uh, stick with me here, I'm going to try and make it as painless as possible uh, and you will thank me later. And if you don't thank me later, you'll be having these words ringing in your ears, perhaps at some point in the future, as you're probably going to find out either for yourself or through my own experiences, at least. Now, if all goes well, um, you also hear Nina, who works for me, is my development manager, give the the, um, the Russian version of Trust But Verify. Доверяй, но проверяй. Trust But Verify. Uh, so I'm going to have a little go myself. It's Dovriai no Provriai. Доверяй, но проверяй. And uh, probably completely ruined the Russian um, version of that. But but here's the thing. Um, Trust But Verify became famous as a, as a quotation or a saying that Ronald Reagan, the former US president, gave round about in, in the 80s, clearly when he was US president. And uh, a lot of people attribute that cl- that quotation, Trust But Verify, to him. But actually, when I looked at the source of the, or the origin rather, of the of the quotation and where it came from, in fact, it is based on a Russian proverb, and uh, and I guess you know Reagan was quite a smart fellow actually, and uh, he probably you know they were going for the Cold War at the time, and he probably looked out for a, a a Russian saying or proverb that he could latch onto to help with relations or to make his point politically, etc. But I'm sure the irony was probably um, not lost on the Russians, perhaps, or, or maybe it was lost on the Russians, uh, for him to pick up on such a, a, a Russian proverb in the dealings that he had with them. So I don't know what they made of it, but that's where it came from. And, and what does it mean? Uh, I guess it means that, you know, we, we obviously we need to go forward. We can't just, you know, live uh, in our little, under a rock and not venture out and, and be afraid of everything. The big bad world is out there, but uh, so we need to venture out there. I don't know why, but I've got Finding Nemo just as a picture in my mind at the moment. You know, Finding Nemo going out and venturing, uh, despite maybe the big sharks that are out there that are going to eat us. It's quite a lot, quite a, a parallel, isn't it, to property in many ways? So yeah, thanks uh, for Finding Nemo popping into my mind there unexpectedly. You can tell this is unscripted, can't you? But you know, tr- so trust. Yes, we need to trust people. And, and mainly people, but it's also corporations which consist of people essentially. And um, we need to trust, but we need to verify what people are telling us. And that is the moral of this particular story. So hopefully by the end of it, if you haven't already got it, then you're going to get it. So um, I think, you know, I liken due diligence to peeling an onion. 
And um, I did actually write uh, this, this the December article for uh, YPN magazine is, is also by the same title, Trust But Verify. For, so I'm going to overlap a little bit of the content. Uh, so spoiler alert, people who read my column in YPN, yes, you're going to hear a little bit of that uh, reference in this podcast episode and vice versa. But I'm going to add some different elements in just to make it a little bit different. But in that particular article, I did talk about the, um, the process of due diligence is much like peeling an onion. In other words, there's layer after layer after layer, just as there is with an onion. And I did also make the corny dad joke that, you know, it can often make you cry. Well, the, the reality is if you don't peel the la layers of the onion, in this case, it will make you cry. Whereas actually in cooking or, you know, obviously preparing uh, an onion, um, that it's, it's actually the process of peeling the layers or chopping the onion, which will make you cry. In this particular case, it's not chopping it and not peeling it will, that will make you cry. And what I mean by that is if we don't do thorough due diligence, then we may end up paying a price later on. So it's something to, you know, it's, if I could say we only, you know, master one skill in this business, just pick one. It would be this, master the skill of undertaking adequate and thorough due diligence. That would be it. That would be my number one. I've thought about it long and hard. Uh, it isn't about being creative. It isn't about picking the right strategy. It isn't about hustling. It isn't about, you know, just putting yourself out there. It isn't about mindset, actually. It's about due diligence. Uh, and due diligence is making sure that you, you take the right moves and you don't come unstuck in making them. And it's going to, you know, uh, I think in investing terms, we talk about protect the capital, protect the downside at all costs. But of course, you know, in, if you're any kind of entrepreneur, if you're any kind of investor, there's going to be risk. And with risk comes reward. So we need to venture out. But, you know, at the same time, making sure we've got adequate protections in place. And that protection comes down to us. So we are responsible ultimately for everything that happens to us in our investments, in our property business, in our life, actually, just to extend it into the psychological realm. But, you know, we're responsible. And so it rests on us. And the biggest responsibility of all, I can not stress it enough if you're not picking it up already, is to undertake thorough due diligence. Well, um, a lot of people talk about research and due diligence, and they do go hand in hand. Uh, but they are, in fact, distinct and different. So um, I'm just going to read it out. So research is a, a general assessment of a market, service, and or potential service providers to arrive at a short list to select from. Whereas due diligence is specific analysis of a property or service provider in order to arrive at a clear investment decision or service provider appointment with the chosen selection. So in other words, if you can imagine, it's kind of a funnel. Research is at the top of the funnel. So it's gathering information, collating, you know, condensing it into a central place to produce a shortlist, essentially. Whereas due diligence is to take that shortlist and drill down deep and to make a final, help make a final single selection in the area that we're going in. So due diligence, you know, research goes wide, due diligence goes deep, I guess is probably the summary I would give at that particular point. So there is a distinction. Don't get trapped into thinking if you've done research that you've done due diligence or vice versa. Both are actually necessary skills. But I would say the one that is most necessary is due diligence. So actually, you can have a choice of one 
uh, and have a binary choice, yes or no, that if you do adequate due diligence, you should be protected as a result of that. So you, you, you can't go far wrong by being good at due diligence, even if you haven't got adequate research in place. But of course, it's best to have both. And of course, why am I laboring this point? I'm laboring it because in the high ticket world of property, um, there is, you know, there's a lot at stake, frankly. Um, there's a lot of money around involved in property transactions, property partnerships, property dealings. And of course, um, you know, there's people who want to get a piece of that action, if you like. And uh, some people, perhaps a little bit more unscrupulous than others, um, they, you know, don't necessarily have the right ethics or perhaps they're just motivated in a different way or see the world in a different way. And they just want to present information to us that we have to, to, uh, you know, to vet, if you like, and qualify to make sure we make the right decision. So there we go. I think I've laboured the point in terms of the introduction as to the importance of due diligence, but I really did want to labour it. So now I want to do, want to do is give you a couple of tools, really, uh, to help you with the due diligence process. It should be easier to say, shouldn't it? It's probably why people say research. It's easier to say than due diligence. So I think, you know, in terms of the layers of the onion, at the very basic level, I'd say there's three layers. And I break this down into what I call the SPA model, S-P-A, SPA model. And that stands for stakeholders, property and area. So you can't really forget that, can you? So if you start at the outer area, uh, stakeholders, and you move in, property and area, probably actually goes the other way. Area moves into stakeholders, moves into property. And now maybe I'm going to talk about them in reverse order. Uh, no, I'm not actually. I'm going to talk about them in that, in that particular order. So it, if we talk about stakeholders, the stakeholders really somebody who could be involved in our uh, property transaction. Um, it's anyone and everyone that could be involved. Uh, so, of course, this could include professionals, that could be solicitors, accountants, brokers, surveyors, project managers, quantity surveyors, etc. It could be tradespeople. And um, I think at one point I did, a, I did a sort of a rough list of the, the 14, I think it was 14 types of trade that could be involved in a, in a fairly vanilla single let transaction from, uh, you know, carpenters and bricklayers and plumbers, and electricians and carpet fitters. I think I might have said them twice. But, um, you know, you get the picture. It could be you know, several trades that are involved um, in our transaction. Uh, and then I guess you've got uh, different types of, uh, of agents. You could have a letting agent, a sourcing agent, uh, an estate agent. Of course, we've got, um, we've got people who stay in the property. So we could have a tenant or a guest, for example, depending on what type of strategy we're adopting. And then I guess we've got you know, partners. Um, partners is a bit of a catch-all phrase, which could literally include investment partners. It could include lenders, business partners, service providers, trainers, and mentors. So there's different types of category uh, within the stakeholder setting. And we need to have uh, due diligence, you know, steps put in place to be able to, to vet and verify all of the people that we're getting involved in. So, yeah, it kind of sounds like a lot, doesn't it, that we could be, we could be involved in. So um, I think what's important is to verify the credentials and the claims that are made independently as far as possible. And, uh, and just to give you uh, an example... Uh, I, I was dealing with a, uh, a contractor recently, so that's in the area of trades, I guess. And um, they, they provided references. They talked about their experience. Um, you know, they just talked a good game, essentially. 
And um, I'm going to be honest with you because the way to really convey this message is to reveal some of the own mistakes and pain points that I've had in my life and my business uh, dealings, which will maybe help you to avoid the same ones and maybe just put you a little bit on notice that you ought to go through some of these steps. Um, because if I can make these mistakes, then surely you can make these mistakes uh, and come a cropper as well. So needless to say, um, I had I had recommendation of this particular person. I had two people that I trust who actually sounded them out, sounded this builder out and said, yeah, seems a really good guy. Um, happy to work with them, you know, local, locally based, well connected. We need in this particular case, it was, it was a conservation area. So um, specialized in conservation, had had previous dealings of dealing with projects, could even even show me, I was literally standing out to the property and pointed at um, a property opposite that he'd worked on really did talk a good game. Everything seemed fine. And yet there was one simple step that I didn't take that if I did take would have raised a red flag at the time. And you know what's coming. Um, I didn't take that step. I didn't raise the red flag and therefore I didn't dig any deeper because I wasn't aware of it until it was too late. And so somewhere down the line, this particular, um, you know, contractor kind of turned on me uh, for want of a better description um, and around about mid-September was telling me that the two projects that he was responsible for would both be delivered on budget. In fact, actually one of them would be delivered below budget. So one was going to be on budget, one was going to be below budget. Everything seemed absolutely fine and uh, we just carried on. That was around about mid-September. Fast forward not that long, two to three weeks later, and I had a bit of a surprise. Uh, on one of the projects, I was asked to pay an extra £20,000. Now, it was a, a £150,000 uh, quotation uh, or estimate for the, for the work, and I was asked to pay £20,000. Now, we're about 60% into that particular project, and two to three weeks pre previously, I've been told we should finish on budget. So not a lot really happened in that couple of weeks. Nothing significant, nothing earth-shattering really happened. Uh, I was like, what, what's going on here then? And coincidentally, the second project was still forecast to run. Uh, it was actually on the revised budget, which was in fact a cost saving. So, okay, so one budget, one was going to go a little bit above budget. Okay, it's a bit more than 10%, isn't it? But, uh, and the other one was still going to be running under budget. So it was probably, you know, maybe maybe 10,000 over on two projects. Wasn't too much of a disaster, uh, I guess. But the, you know, the alarm bells started to sort of ring a little bit. Well, how could they tell me two to three weeks ago that it was going to run on budget and now it's going to run over budget? And there was no rationale. There was no justification. It just was what it was. It is what it is, is what I was told and asked to accept. Needless to say, my, uh, my project managers went and uh, had a conversation with the contractor and was that we're asking him to produce a, a remaining program of works costed to justify the extra £20,000 expense. And in doing so, they essentially, you know, one of the description identified savings, um, or you could say identified the areas he was overcharging us. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, he, he had an estimate of uh, supply and fit of fire doors in, in, in this apartment conversion, or well, conversion into apartments that we were doing. And there's quite a lot of these um, fire doors. And uh, we, you know, I asked him, well, how much would a fire door cost? About £25. How much would it cost to fit? About £75. Well, he's in that sort of vicinity, £100 to supply and fit fire doors. And yet he had £400 um, to supply and fit fire doors. And when I tell you there were 20 of these, obviously that was quite a significant amount of money, quite a significant variance in his figures. 
So we managed to nick back about £6,000, needless to say, by saying, well, you've just told us it's £100 to supply and fit fire doors. You've quoted £8,000, so that's £6,000 saving out of the twenty. And that, that exercise was repeated on a couple of our, uh, occasions, if you like, and we managed to get the £20,000 down to back to budget again. We were happy, uh, or so we thought. Anyway, this particular contractor decided to come back again, and uh, what he did this time is the, the second project, which was, was forecast to go under budget, and even, even at the latest round was said that uh, it would run um, at, at budget, Lo and behold, we had another request for £20,000 of extras there. So we, we knocked out £20,000 on the first project, only for it to pop up on the second project. So you can see what's kind of going on. Just wanted £20,000 from us, right? So asked for £20,000 on that one. And again, you know, it wasn't easily justified, let's say. And not, not to mention, two to three weeks before, there was going to run on budget, even, you know, within one day it was still going to be running at the same sort of level uh, and lo and behold we were hit up with uh, a request for more cost not only that but on the first project not this twenty thousand pounds that the contractor came back and asked us for they in fact upped that request to forty thousand and and without uh, you know willing to entertain uh, you know the the breakdown of how that was made up so we've suddenly gone from mid-september Everything's going to run on project, uh, sorry, on budget. To two to three weeks later, early October, um, sixty thousand pounds worth of extras out of nowhere, and um, we're scratching our heads and trying to figure out what is going on. Well, you know, long you, you could look at it whichever way you want. Um, perhaps they were managing the project costings badly. Perhaps they were just greedy. Perhaps you know whatever. You know, they they were just running into financial difficulties, and and we were seen as a way out for this. So, yeah, I'm not going to bore you with the whole story, but needless to say, we actually had to uh, remove this contractor from the project because not only did he refuse to bring the costing down, he uh, became cantankerous to deal with, very awkward, quite aggressive, just refusing to, to cooperate, really. And so uh, we just thought the best thing to do was to, to move on. Now, here's the thing. And I'm making the point, I'm telling you all of this so that you understand what, what could it have been avoided? Well, that red flag that I told you about was um, his company background. And normally I would say, look on um, company's house, look for the individual, their company. Well, look for their company, then look for the directors and then search on the directors and look at their other directorships. That's just something I would normally suggest. It's in my due diligence checklist, no less. And I didn't do it. I didn't do that. And I did it. Um, in you know out of curiosity really just well what happened here I'm trying to learn now okay now I'm trying to learn so um, something happened trying to learn how could it have been avoided so I, I went back through the process identified really that I kind of put a lot of trust uh, here's a keyword um, in this individual and also because of the recommendations the referrals the the opinion if you like of people close to me and um I didn't take all of the steps I should have taken as a result of that. Uh, needless to say, over the last sort of decade, let's say that, this individual has had multiple companies that have gone on for about two years and then have been suddenly dissolved. And when I looked, when I looked into the businesses, which is something you would do in that situation, why is that? You just ask questions. I'm not saying it's untoward, but it's just something that you'd follow up. Well, why is that? Well, there wasn't 
There wasn't a, a lot of history of heavy losses. As far as I could see, there was one business that made a minor loss, but the rest, they didn't really seem to file any accounts, actually. So there was no real audit trail in that sense. But that in itself is a red flag. Um, so you, you can almost imagine a scenario. Somebody sets up in business. They have a couple of years of trade. They're either, um, you know, don't produce their accounts or they're overdue on their accounts. And then they dissolve the company. Um, and who knows what's gone on? It's not visible to the public. Um, you know, for example, they, they, they could have run up losses. They haven't filed accounts. They haven't paid their uh, tax and VAT. They, they perhaps owe people money and they folded the business and then they phoenixed it in a new disguise two years later. And I know that. I know that. And yet I didn't take that step. So I'm being very vulnerable here and I'm admitting a mistake and it's on my due diligence checklist. But I'm telling you just so that you're aware. So um, there we go. Um, I, I, so I just actually put, I mentioned due diligence checklist now a couple of times. So uh, if you want a copy of my due diligence checklist, um, just, just ping me uh, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. I'll share it with you. Um, the only warning I would say is make sure you follow it. That's it. You probably learned from my mistake. Um, we're going through a bit of pain now in terms of dealing with this particular uh, contractor, but I kind of just wanted to make that point. So, um, and, and equally, um, perhaps if you write in, I'll also share a copy of the YPN article with you as well, because it goes into a bit more depth that, because I've told you that long meandering story about the contractor, I probably don't have time now to tell you um, about that in this particular case. So, that's stakeholders. So we're talking about the SPA model, uh, S being stakeholders. Well, the P, stands for property. And in this particular case, uh, I also have a checklist. Now, I have a checklist about the criteria that I am looking for in any given strategy. So my criteria does vary. So if I'm looking at a vanilla buy-to-let, it varies from a commercial conversion to an HMO to a service accommodation type of project. I'm, I'm now involved in multiple types of uh, strategy, multi -ty multiple types of uh, project, and in fact, in several countries, let alone locations. So I actually have to have checklists, if you like, to make sure I don't make a mistake. And people like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, some of the greatest investors of all times, they recommend highly having having checklists. So, yep, I've been, I've been, I do have them, and uh, most of the time I do use them. And what they do is they they just remind us what our criteria are. What are we actually looking for? And they help us, therefore, to avoid slipping into um, emotional decision making or subjective bias. You'd argue that the uh, uh, any bias is the enemy's um, enemies, the investor's enemy in chief, and so if we can avoid those by being very pragmatic, very objective, less emotional, less subjective, then it's going to help us out as an investor. So have a checklist. What are you looking for? And I just have a couple. And by the way, there is not such a thing as a perfect investment. There is not such a thing as a one hundred percent score on my checklist. Um, I don't think I've ever had a hundred percent score. Um, so there's always some kind of trade-off with any type of uh, property, any type of investment. So uh, don't expect perfection, uh, but equally, you know, have a checklist and, and have some sort of grading system so that you can quantify, um, you know, decision-making. And of course, some elements on the checklist are more important than other ones. Some are, are even non-negotiable, let's say that. So I think I've labored the point of having a checklist with your criteria in terms of the uh, the property. And uh, and to make sure that you you know you adhere to that. 
And just as a little bit, little sidebar there, um, I've got a, a friend of mine, and um, he's he's actually he's an expat. He's he's been working and uh, well, live, obviously living and working in a foreign country, and he's going to probably relocate next year. And what he wants to do is just put a put a foothold in in the country he's working in, perhaps for a long term presence, and have a long term investment in that bit in that country for the future. So he's been asking my advice really. What 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 should he do? How should he go about things? And of course, he's a friend. I'm gonna you know gonna help him out. And um, so we've been having these conversations. And he he talked to me the other day, and he said, well, initially when we were talking, he said he wanted to invest in a certain location. And he had a certain idea in mind what he wanted to achieve. So he didn't want a project, for example. He didn't. He definitely didn't want to do that. He just wanted by a decent investment, minimal works, going to return a certain amount of money, fairly hands-off passive investment, given that he's going to be leaving the country. And so the next thing is he's uh, he's engaged a couple of people to help him to find uh, these uh, find some properties and um, and they've introduced him to something which is out of area perhaps needs a little bit of work and has got this 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 promise this lure of like well in a year you can have a, a significant increase in your investment based on what i don't know so he ran it he wanted to speak to me about it we had a conversation over the weekend and basically the conclusion was well what what are your criteria? Um, and and I, I asked him, what are your criteria? And he rattled them off. And I said, have you got those written down? And he said, no. I said, okay, that's the first thing you need to do. Write down your criteria and then compare it with what you've been presented with. Does it match? And he said, no, it doesn't. But you know, I'm kind of being drawn towards it because of the persuasiveness, if you like, of the person who's presenting him the opportunity. And there we go. So it's, you know, it's about uh, knowing what you want to begin with um, being crystal clear on that, following a, 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 an objective process, not a subjective process, and um, and then and then sticking to your guns, really, unless there's a very very good reason why, and and then take your time if that's the situation. So I'm not saying necessarily the alternative investment was going to be bad, but it was definitely not what he was really looking for. So I think he'd need a very good reason to be able to change his mind. And of course, what he did is he spoke to me. Which brings me to my next point, which is to bring in specialists or experts or wise people, wise counsellors, if you like, to help you in that respect. So with the property, that could be uh, a survey, uh, for example. And, you know, I'll give you a quick example there where perhaps I've been caught out and uh, which might help you. So I have actually bought um, property without having a full survey done. And, um, you know, on, on one occasion I bought property which um, is, in a, is in a conservation area and had some windows that have been replaced. Uh, I didn't know this until later, but they hadn't got the necessary consents. But it wasn't really picked up. Uh, I had a valuation, but it wasn't picked up at a survey. Uh, and then the, the, uh, the sellers, the vendors, if you like, they produced their information packs, no mention of any window replacement. So it wasn't picked up through the legal process. It wasn't identified through the valuation process. Bearing in mind, I employed a lawyer, I employed, employed a valuer, and yet nobody picked up these windows. And then, of course, we realized uh, the conservation officer comes around and goes, these are replacement windows. They're not compliant. They need to be box sash, but they're not box sash. These are UPVC. You need to replace them. Yes, I need to replace them because I'm now the legal owner of the property. And uh, of course, I'm backtracking, trying to find out what, how, what, how did this happen? You know, <laughs> how has this happened? And um, long story short, because it wasn't easily traceable, I've tried lots of ways, by the way. Uh, we know that they did it, but they've covered their tracks, they being the previous owners. 
they've covered their tracks. Obviously, they didn't disclose it. Um, we even know who supplied the windows. We know who supplied the windows, but we cannot get any uh, written evidence that they were supplied under their ownership. And so, um, yep, it's a, it's a tough one. So they deliberately, in other words, um, uh, ducked the system and indeed passed on the responsibility to us. So not a nice feeling run about £20,000 worth of windows um, is what I'm having to deal with at the moment. I haven't given up. Um, I know who supplied the windows and uh, yeah, just watch this space. But I just wanted to let you know that that can happen. So um, word of warning, property, not just have a checklist, but usually bring in specialists and, and you know be very thorough, be very diligent in your due diligence when it comes to the property itself. So we go, that's the P. And then we have the A. So the A in the SPA model stands for area. So um, some people, they, they know where they're going to invest because they're going to invest probably where they live uh, or possibly where they work. They're the two obvious choices. But if you live and work, let's say, in a high-cost area, low-yield area, maybe that's not the best idea for you and, and the best use of your money. So a lot of us tend to look outside of the area that we live in and or working to get better investment returns. And of course, that takes us into unfamiliar territory. And so how do we identify uh, a decent area to invest in? It's one of the most common questions I get asked, actually, is uh, how do I identify an area? And I would say this. I've got uh, two simple models that I tend to use to help identify an area. It's not as simple as this, but this will help uh, cover off 80% of the ground that you need to cover. And those models are the big three and the star criteria. So I'm just obviously going to take you through what they mean now. So uh, let's start with the big three. So the big three are just really three things that you can look at to help you when you're doing your area research and due diligence and to narrow down the areas. There's something like 200 or more decent sized towns and cities in the UK. So that's quite difficult to narrow it down to one. So how do we do that? Well, the big three will give you a clue. So um, the first one is population. So people, in other words, where are people hanging out? Where are they congregating? So we've got you know, some relevant points with regard to people. We've got the overall size of the population. So a catchment area. In my own personal case, for example, I'm usually looking to invest in a, catch in a population sort of urban area, let's call it that, of, uh, or, 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 you know, let's call it an urban area, of at least 75,000 people or more. So, I'd, you know, if there's less than 75,000 people, for me, that's suggesting that maybe there's, a, there's not so much demand for, for property. I'm looking, maybe, I'm not just talking about rental, but also sale point of view here. So, um, you know, maybe there's not so much demand, not so much, you know, activity. And so, um, you know, it's, it makes it harder to get predictability in terms of the data as well, for that matter. So um, I have a minimum cutoff size. It used to be 100,000. It's now more like 75,000. Um, particularly if it's a flip, I can probably do a flip in a lower population area than I can a, uh, for a rental. Um, so that's the first thing, overall size. But the next thing is this, it's really important. Look at trends, population trends, growth trends net migration, population growth, etc. Look at those trends. 
And you, there's quite a number of sources, I'm not going to reference them all here, but I'm sure you can find them, uh, about potential growth trends historically, projecting forward. If you just look at the housing plan, usually on the local authority website, they'll give some clues about housing demand, different types of tenure over usually the next decade. So that's something that I look at. So if you're going into a decent sized area to begin with, and you're going one that is trending up and not trending down, then you're going to do all right. So that's the first one. The second one is um, is buyer or tenant demand, obviously depending on your exit strategy. So if you're flipping, buyer demand. If you're renting, tenant demand. So I'm looking at this. So there's a couple of things that you can do here. Normally I look on the portal, so that's right, move and Zoopla principally. And I just look at the distinction between the properties available um, for, for sale, let's say, if it's flip or for rent, if it's rental. And I click on that little button that says, let, you know, ex include or exclude um, sale agreed or let agreed. And I look at the dis difference, how many properties there are in that particular location. Of course, you can expand the location to as large as you wish. So um, we're looking for the general catchment area around that particular property. So you know, usually a postcode area uh, within a quarter of a mile, ideally, um, but perhaps you can extend that location just to kind of get a feel for the relative supply and demand. Now, when you first do this, you'll go, okay, well, there's 80, 80 including letter greed and there's 60 excluding letter greed. What does that tell me? Well, the best way to uh, interpret that data is to repeat that same process in different locations. Then you've got a comparison, you've got a benchmark. So that's the first thing I'd say. Um, I'm not going to go into it in too much detail just because I recognize I'm running on in time. Uh, and then the other one is to look at um, home.co.uk, which is a great resource. And the reason I look at home.co.uk is for this. It has the average time on the market statistics. So you can have average time on the market for sale, average time on the market for rent. And that tells you how sort of hot a market is. And I typically say if, if the average time is, you know, 120 to 150 days or more, that's quite a cold market. That's for sales. Um, if it's sort of 60 days, 45 days or less, it's a really hot market. So I'm looking, I usually am looking for the sweet spot or what I call the Goldilocks, you know, area of not too hot, not too cold. And that's probably somewhere between 45 and 60 and around about 120 to 150. That would be the sort of benchmark that I would look for. So there we go, um, tenant or buyer demand. And then the third of the big three is uh, price and rental movements. Where are they heading? You know, so you, what you're looking here is trends. So, you know, you trend is your friend until he turns against you, of course. Um, so obviously we, we do get, uh, you know, ebbs and flows in terms of trends. But ideally, if you can catch an upward trend or at least a static trend, then you should be OK in terms of choosing your location. Ideally, pick an upward trend, of course. So what am I saying here? We're, we're tr looking for prices or rents that are trending upwards. Of course, you could be a little bit contrarian and go for something that is either trended down or is at the bottom and might pick up. So I'm not going to drill into that too much in this uh, podcast episode, but that is something of a skill that you could develop. But you kind of need to have your wits about you to make sure that you are picking up the right, uh, the right trend information and that you haven't just picked up a dog of an area that's going to let you down and just going to keep going down, down, down. So um, they're the big three. That can be useful in terms of assessing an area. And then getting a little bit sort of more micro once you've got in the area. So that the big three helps you identify uh, a shortlist of areas. 
And then this next one, the star criteria, helps you sort of narrow it down a bit further. And the star criteria, it's a mnemonic that spells out uh, star, clearly, and that stands for schools, transport, amenities, and revenue. Uh, so th these are just, you know, it's something to help you really narrow down the search. So schools, it's relevant for a lot of people. Obviously, if you're letting to students, um, then schools include universities in this context. Um, and if you're letting to families, schools is very, very relevant. You know, good schools are a pull. They will pull your property upwards in terms of demand, potentially rent or prices. So you're looking for decent schools in the area and the catchment area of your particular property. So always look at the school ratings. This is, of course, assuming that, you know, you're targeting people where uh, some sort of academic institution is relevant. So usually schools or families. Of course, if you're looking for young professionals, it's not quite so relevant. So you can then maybe go, go a little bit counterintuitive and avoid the sort of uh, high school catchment area or the university locations potentially uh, uh, if you're targeting young professionals. So you can apply a little bit of judgment is what I'm saying. So S is, is schools and the T is transport. What I mean by that? Well, usually I'm looking for um, the property to be within 10 or 20 minutes of the nearest appropriate transport connection or town centre. So town centre, that'd be how, how long would it take to walk into town? Um, if it's more of a commute, uh, I'm looking for, you know, depending on the tenant profile or the buyer profile, it's a train, tram or bus station. Uh, or it could be a major trunk road if people, it's a commuter town, for example. So I'm looking for how accessible it is. Um, how connected is this property in terms of transportation links? There's another type of connection, which is broadband, but I won't mention that at this point in time. So that's the T. Next one up is the amenities. Uh, and what I mean by amenities is shops, bars, restaurants, banks, post office, healthcare facilities, and that sort of thing. Um, yes, things are going to get back to normal at some point. Yes, we're all going to go out and, and entertain ourselves. And these are a big draw for tenants and buyers. So we should be looking at these, how accessible they are, uh, how can they do the shopping and, and get around and get what they need to get done um, you know, from this property? Or is it gonna be difficult? Because people don't want difficult, they want ease, easiness. So look at the amenities within the uh, general catchment area of the property that you might be considering or reverse the, the logic and target properties in with, with good amenities in their particular catchment area. And then we've got R, and R stands for revenue. And revenue is a bit of a cheat because it allows me to spell the word star. And so revenue in this context, it actually means uh, jobs and inward investment. So the, where the money is, the money comes from jobs, it comes from investment. And investment can be public sector investment, or it could be, you know, in terms of infrastructure projects, for example. Um, and it could be uh, private sector investment, for example, the, the building of a new Amazon warehouse, or a, uh, I'm thinking of the North here, aren't I? Um, the, in fact, Amazon's everywhere right now. But uh, a new Amazon warehouse is going to create jobs. Um, in Hull, for example, where I'm, I'm familiar with, um, I know that there's like a green sector expansion. There's a lot of businesses going into that. In, into that location, that's going to be buoyant. It's going to buoy up the market. It's going to increase demand for housing, generally speaking. And, and what's the local economy like, in other words? So um, they're the things that you need to, to take into consideration once you've drilled down. You've got an area generally, and if you start looking at a property, um, you know, you can sort of, you know, this is the hybrid, you know, the, the extra layer of the onion is somewhere in between, between area and between property. You're looking at the star uh, criteria checklist. So 
I mentioned checklists a couple of times. Um, if you like copies of my checklist, they're just really easy go-to places. There was a lot more I wanted to talk about actually in terms of general principles, how to manage your, your money, etc. Some just you know general advice, but they're in the checklist. So I'm, I'll tell you what, if you're interested, just drop me an email, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. I'll share my checklist. That'll get you going and um, it'll help you in this context of uh, undertaking proper due diligence. So we've spoken a lot. I've probably spoken more than I expected to, in all honesty, uh, on this topic today. Hopefully with a little bit of some anecdotes and personal stories. I didn't give you a personal story about the area, location, uh, issues that I've had. Um, try, let me give you one actually before I finish. So yeah, I had a property uh, bought in an area. Uh, I bought in the, in in the states actually in Chicago, south side of Chicago, and, and um, somebody burnt it burnt it down. Um, and they didn't just burn it down; they actually tried twice unsuccessfully to burn it down, and the third time they actually succeeded. So maybe the area wasn't the best. <laughs> I guess is the point. Um, so. <laughs> The um, when I was talking to the fire assessor, I was like, well, you know, why do people do this? And they said, well, they're normally targeting one of two type to one of two people, either you as the owner or the occupants, the tenants of the property. So maybe there were some unsavories in there. I wasn't sure it was being managed by a, a letting agent. So I wasn't sure who they put in there. Needless to say, yes, the property uh, was uh, there was an arson attack and it got burned down. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. And even more fortunately for me, I had proper insurance. So that was OK. There we go. So I've given some anecdotes. Hopefully I've made the topic of uh, due diligence a little less dull, boring and painful. But trust me on this. It, as I mentioned right at the beginning, um, trust but verify. It's probably the biggest, most essential skill set that you could learn and develop and uh, implement into your property business. I, you know, I, I, I've, I've given you some examples of where I try to implement it. I've also told you of the pain actually sometimes where I know what I, I know what I need to do and I just haven't done for a couple of reasons. I could make my excuses to you that I relied on other people, for example, but I should never do that. I should always make my own checks. You should too. And hopefully it'll keep you safe out there because there's a bunch of sharks who's waiting to take your money, basically. So uh, get good at due diligence and maybe that won't happen to you uh, or will happen less frequently. So yes, we're in the high ticket area. These things do happen. So take care out there. Well, there you go. Um, I've rattled on a bit longer than I expected to. I thought it'd be a short episode. Um, it's not. Sorry about that. But um, I'll draw a line now. If you'd like to see the show notes, they'll be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net, as they usually are. Drop me an email, as I mentioned, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. If you want the checklist or you just want to talk about this topic, happy to talk to you. Uh, swap some initial notes on that. No problem at all. But I guess, you know, I'm going to finish off now. Or You know, all that remains to say really is thanks once again for listening again this week. And um, I look forward to talking to you and hearing from you on the Property Voice podcast next time. For now, it's Chacha. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.